morning to everyone. For devotional, I didn't really have an Easter theme thing. I just a couple of thoughts uh, from the last week. And, uh, I wanted to start out with Psalms 122. Uh, growing up, the church I went to, the minister that always started out his sermon every time with Psalms 122, the first verse. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I was just thinking about it, if we're actually glad every Sunday morning, or if I'm actually glad every Sunday morning to come here. Um, he would start with that verse, and also John fourteen twenty-seven: Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I was just thinking this week how much of a blessing it is that we can still have our church without interruption for the most part. We don't have to really fear to come to church or, or worry about what could happen if we do meet here. I was looking through some survey, I don't know, I didn't do a lot of background search on, on the sources, but about church attendance, and I found an article that said about the decline of church attendance in the U.S. It was saying even if we do a, a very broad definition of a regular church attendance, and they had it as someone that shows up three out of every eight Sundays is considered a regular church attendee. And it said even under that, only 23 to 25% of Americans would qualify as a regular church attendee. And then later in their article, it said the four reasons that those people would attend church out of, out of approximately 25% of Americans. I know it might be a lot different in some areas, but just a general the four reasons people attend church, four most popular reasons, 68% to become a better person, 69% to introduce faith to their children, and 66% to find personal comfort, and 81% to grow closer to God. And I was just thinking about not bad reasons at all, especially the one to introduce faith to their children. I was just thinking it should already be done at home instead of using that as an excuse to go to church. So their children, I know it's not always easy to, to do all that, but I think the survey obviously is not. I don't know how it would be if you would do in a general area like a, a highly populated with Mennonite or, or certain areas of the country. Probably change quite a bit. But I was just thinking about hearing that at church for years, just uh, the idea of being glad every time we can come. If someone tells us we're ready to go to church, let us go into the house of the Lord. If it actually brings joy every time we hear that, or if it's something we just do because it's Sunday morning, um, talking to myself definitely as much here as anybody. And then also, just thinking along that line, 
was reading in Hebrews a little bit. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19 through 25. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And verse 25 was what I was not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. I know the past year has been a little difficult sometimes to always come together as a group like this, but I'm just really thankful that we still can without fear or any, any opposition from anyone for the most part. So I guess just for... For myself and everyone, just thinking, if we're actually glad when they say, let us go into the house of the Lord, and then also just a good reminder to not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Just thinking on that a lot the last week, and then for me, it's, it's good to keep in remembrance for that. You can be seated. Well, good morning to everyone. Welcome here again. Thank you, John, for that song. The resurrection from, I believe, Peter's perspective? Yeah, yeah, it was Peter. Peter, yeah. Between that and what we had in instruction class on our assurance of salvation, I think we pretty much covered it all. But uh, for those of you that missed that, um, I do want to look at Easter today, um, along with that uh, Good Friday a little bit, and then also Easter. I would like to read the account of this in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, as we know, each of the four Gospels has a little different perspective on the account here. Um, Each was written by a different person, and each brings out different aspects of it. Some details and events are included in some that are not in others, and reading all four together certainly gives a much more complete, clearer picture of what happened in those few days and nights leading up to, and including Jesus' trial, resurrection, Uh, I'm sorry, crucifixion, resurrection. But this morning, I do want to read the account from Matthew. I'm going to break in in Matthew chapter 27. Starting at verse 35. Now, just for some context, uh, this is after Jesus' last supper with his disciples. And all that he told them in those final hours uh, recorded in John chapter 13 through 17, Judas had already left to betray him, 
Jesus had prayed in the garden while his disciples took naps. And he was arrested, he was tried, and he was sentenced to death. So breaking in here, Matthew 27, verse 35. And they crucified him, parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set over his head this, his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, another on the left. And they that passed by him reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. If I'm not mistaken, that's from twelve till three in the afternoon, noon till three. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathiai, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straight away one of them ran, took a sponge, and filled it with vinegar, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let's see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now the centurion, they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done. They feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Joas, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When even was come, there was a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out, of, out in a rock. And he rolled a great stone over the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day that followed was the, pre was the day of preparation. The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that this deceiver said, while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last heir shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now this is one of the, like I said, the shorter versions of the whole event. Um, to read the rest of the Gospels would give a, a little more um, fuller perspective of, of uh, what happened. I would like to just make a quick note of a few verses in the account in John. John chapter 19, uh, verses 28 through 30. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar that filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon a hyssop and put it to his mouth. 
When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So we know that Jesus here on the cross knew that he was accomplishing a plan that had been started uh, many, many centuries earlier, back when Adam and Eve first sinned. We could turn to that and we could read that God had already had a future uh, Messiah in place in, or planned that would pay for the debt that that initial sin had started and that mankind continued. I want to read a few verses from Romans chapter 3. And if you want to turn there, I'm kind of going to go verse by, by verse, but I'll also be reading them in the New Living, as I feel that does make this passage easier to understand. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. <coughs> but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, those that lived before Jesus. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would, what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. For we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. So I feel these verses do an excellent job both of explaining the need for salvation and also the process of how, how salvation happened. Uh, verses 21 through 23 declare God's righteousness and also man's sinfulness. Um, there will always be a gap between God and man. Um, God, God um, has shown us a way to be right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. So in the Old Testament, uh, the law was in place, and when Christ came, he did away with some of that. I came across a quote that says that religion of any kind is the attempt of man to appease himself to whatever he worships. I'll just to repeat that, so any kind of religion is man's attempt to appease himself to whatever he worships. I find that rather interesting, but I think there's some truth to it. So whether man recognizes the true God, or whether he makes a God of his own making, he recognizes there's an expanse between him and his God, and he is making an attempt to bridge that gap. So whether from fear of harm, uh, whether he's afraid his God is going to destroy him if he doesn't obey, or whether maybe a desire for a personal gain, or whatever motivates a person, we think back in times past, 
Um, a lot of the false religions, you know, they pray to the sun god so that they get rain, so their crops grow, fill in the blank. Um, we've heard the term trying to appease the gods. Sometimes it's said a bit sarcastically, but there is a certain amount of truth in that, in that most uh, people, most religions are trying to appease a god of some kind. Even in false religion, this is often done by a sacrifice of some kind, whether it's an actual sacrifice, um, animal sacrifice, even sometimes a human sacrifice, or simply by denying oneself of something. We think of like uh, monks who simply think that they, if they can live without anything, then they will somehow uh, right themselves with, with, with God. So man throughout history has felt the need to acknowledge a God, whether real or false, and that's something God has put in man, even, even sinful man, uh, recognizing a need to acknowledge a higher power, and then recognizing that there is a gap between himself and that higher power, and then attempting to put himself in good favor with that higher power. And even the true God, back in the Old Testament, books of Leviticus, Numbers, um, required a lot of uh, procedures, a lot of rules, a lot of, a lot of uh, ceremonies, um, of his followers, or they faced death. And there was um, situations where people did die instantly because they did not follow what God laid out. So these verses here in Romans, while acknowledging that there is a gap between God and man, say plainly that that gap is unbridgeable by any attempt of man. So nothing, even those in the Old Testament, were not able to bridge that gap it simply um, pushed their sins further down the road. So even the many laws God put in place in the Old Testament were unable to raise man to God's standard. And verse 21, back in Romans 3, also states that it was clearly that it was God's idea. It was not man's idea um, to make a way possible for man to be right with God. Verse 24 through 26 then explains how God, whose justice requires a payment for sin in his mercy and grace, created a way for the price of man's sin to be paid, not by man himself, but by God's own son, a perfect man, and yet a son, the son of God as well. Uh, verse 25 there, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. Um, verse 24, God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight, through Jesus Christ. So that was God's plan of presenting his own son as the payment in order to bridge that gap. So the price was paid for all mankind when Jesus came, um, even those who lived before Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, it says their sins were, in a sense, stacked up and waiting. Um, we read elsewhere that the sacrifices in the Old Testament did not forgive their sins. It simply um, pushed them back, waiting for the future time when Jesus would come. And then verse 27, 28 clearly state as well, this is only God's idea, not man's, and that there is no other way for man to be found righteous before God. It's by nothing that man has done, and therefore we have no grounds for boasting. Uh, we cannot say, look at the great idea I had. It was only God's idea. It's only through him that this is possible. In verse 28, clearly says we are made right with God by faith rather than obeying his law. And then yet at the end in verse 30, when we do 
when we are made right, when we have faith in God, He then gives us the power to fulfill His law, power that we would not have on our own. But too often we attempt to make ourselves right with God by obeying His law, what He commands in the Bible, rather than allowing His power to flow through us and produce the, fr the fruit that being connected to Him then gives. And if we're not careful, it can come down to simply one more attempt to appease the gods, um, as so many other religions do, rather than, those of you who heard last Sunday, uh, heard the sermon on the branch producing fruit because of its connection to the vine, not of what it can do of himself, but because of its connection. So it's not the branch trying to appease the vine, it's simply the branch producing what the vine gives it. And there's sometimes, I know, a rather hard to discern line between whether a person does what he does in an attempt to please God or because God is motivating him. And that's something that each of us needs to answer for ourselves. And verse 29 30 also state that God does not have favorites. Um, he does not have only one type of people that he's looking to save, but the offer is open to anyone who will accept it. But as we know, the death was only, Jesus' death was only the first part of the plan. And while Jesus' death then spares us from the consequences of eternal death, his resurrection is then what gives us the eternal life. So Jesus' death pays that price so that we do not have to pay it ourselves. But then his resurrection then is what brings new life. <clears throat> so the resurrection completes the full redemptive plan of God. Let's go back to... Matthew, and read the account that John just sang about. I will spare you all singing. Matthew chapter 28. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto, them, unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring the disciples' word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go and tell my brethren that they go, in, that they go into, into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city, and showed them the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders, and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. Then Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So back to verse 1 of 28. Um, their Sabbath ended Saturday night. And we know that the Jewish Sabbath went from uh, evening to evening. So from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. Um, and then the two Marys headed out to the tomb on the first day of the week, which would have been the Sunday morning. And in Luke, we read that they were taking spices and other supplies to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. And we think about it, they likely ran out of time on the day of his crucifixion, because by the time Jesus died around mid-afternoon, and Joseph of Arimathea had negotiated with Pilate to have his body, it was certainly getting towards evening. And that was when the Sabbath day began in the evening. So they had a very, very limited time then to do what they did. And if one were to study their burials back then, it was very elaborate what all they went through. So it was probably a very rushed burial um, because to handle then his dead body on a Sabbath would have been against their law. And just as a side note, um, I know this has been discussed before, uh, we question, you know, how is, we talk about Good Friday and then uh, Easter Sunday, uh, how was Jesus in the grave for three days and three nights between Friday night and Saturday night, I think we need to understand that in their day, the word Sabbath referred to more than just their Saturdays, just their, their normal weekly Sabbath. The term was also used to refer to other religious days as well, and a Sabbath was simply a holy day, which of course their Saturday was, um, but it was also simply a day that was set aside for God for something other than normal work. So this would have also covered a lot of their other religious holy days. And historians feel that they counted back, whatever, that's what they do, that the Thursday of that week would have also been one of those other uh, Sabbath days, one of the other religious days that they were looking at, including the, the Passover. And so when they were rushing to avoid the Sabbath, it was the Thursday, not the Saturday. I don't know. Um, this would have put his crucifixion on a Wednesday, giving him three full nights, giving him Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, as well as three full days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, in the grave before rising sometime Saturday night, leaving the grave empty when the women showed up first thing Sunday morning. Now, this is not a point that I feel uh, merits a lot of discussion or argument, except that there is Old Testament prophecy and Jesus himself spoke of rising the third day. And we would assume that, like everywhere else, Jesus meant exactly what he said, the actual third day, not Friday night to Sunday morning. In Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus himself said that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So I'm not proposing we change Good Friday to Good Wednesday, but I feel it is important to understand that there's a very real possibility that when Jesus said three days, he actually meant three literal days. So when the angel rolled back the tomb, or rolled back the stone, in verse 2 here, the tomb was already empty. That Jesus did not arise when the stone was rolled back. He was already gone before then. Um, and as the women left the tomb, Jesus met them on his way back. He was already um, risen, he was gone wherever, and he came back again to meet them. And the angel's response to the women, he is not here, he is risen. We stop and think about this. They were going there um, 
for the not so great job of preparing a dead body um, in the way they did it with spices and everything. And to make matters worse, it was now three days later. This would not typically have been the case. Typically, this would have been done right away. Um, three days later, the task became even more unpleasant, I'm sure. And so to have come to this tomb and all of a sudden meet the angels that are saying, he's not here, he's risen, um, like Errol said this morning, simply changed their whole everything. Probably the most life-changing words that they ever heard were those words right there. Not only did it save them the unpleasant task, but it also meant that what they had been following, who they had been following the last three years, was in fact who he said he was. Um, he was alive again. And their response in verse 8, fear and great joy. Fear undoubtedly at the power of the event that had happened, someone rising from the dead, but also joy at what that event meant for their future. We read elsewhere of the devastation. The rest of the disciples fell at Jesus' death. Um, they lost their close friend. They lost their mentor. Um, and some of them are still clinging to the idea of Jesus setting up an earthly kingdom. And they were still discussing their parts in that kingdom not long before Jesus' crucifixion. But those ideas obviously had died along with Jesus. And even after Jesus' resurrection... They still didn't know what to do. They were still used to being followers. Um, they hadn't yet learned to be leaders. If we would look at John 21, we read that Jesus met his disciples at least twice after the resurrection. But even after those meetings, uh, Peter had an idea. In John 21, 3, he told the others, he's going fishing. And they, someone decided to go along. I think what Peter was essentially saying was he was going back to his life as it was before Jesus had arrived three years earlier. Um, Peter was a fisherman. He knew, he knew fishing. And three years earlier when Jesus had came, he had walked away from that. And here he was essentially saying, I'm going to go back to what, to what I knew before, what was, what was familiar. Then Jesus shows up again and fills their nets to the bursting point of fish. And also along with that, challenged Peter and the others to become, as the children's song says, fishers of men. I think this was kind of a turning point for Peter and for the others. And the book of Acts then shows the disciples changing from what were once very timid followers to very outspoken leaders. Back to Matthew 28, towards the end, uh, when Jesus ascended to heaven, verses 18 through 20, he spoke then of the power that was given him in both heaven and earth. So the power that was returned to him, I believe, after the resurrection. There was a time when God turned his face on him during the crucifixion. And after the resurrection, that power that he had known and experienced before was given back to him. And I have a handful of points here, along with some verses, that tell us some of the results of Jesus' resurrection. Um, lots of others, I'm sure, but here's a couple of them. So number one, his resurrection gave evidence that he was in fact God's son. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, a lot of verses here, you don't necessarily have to follow, turn to all of them. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So this was prophesied. 
Um, this was told ahead of time, and this verified that he was, in fact, God's son. Number two, his resurrection completed God's plan of salvation. Romans 4, verse 25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So, he was delivered for our offenses, he, was, he, he died for our offenses, then his resurrection proved, for our justification, proved that the debt to God had in fact been paid. Without the resurrection, um, one would have to wonder, um, was the debt in fact paid? Or was, he still, was Jesus still paying for that debt? But his resurrection and his return to the Father's side proved that the debt had in fact been paid. By Jesus returning to the place of God's favor, he shows us that the debt of sin no longer needs to separate us from God. God's plan for redemption was, was accomplished, the debt was paid, and by accepting that payment, we too no longer need to hide ourselves from God as Adam and Eve did when they put the first down payment on that debt way back in the garden. Number three, the resurrection allowed Jesus to return to his former place at God's side, which allows him to do a number of things. Um, and we turn to John chapter 16. Sixteen verses six through thirteen, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. This is in the time before his before his crucifixion. Um, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. So he was telling what's going to happen, and he says, "I know this makes you guys, you know, fills your heart with sorrow." Nevertheless, I tell you the truth: it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. When he is come, he will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go unto my Father, and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, so speaking of the Holy Spirit here, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself. Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you the things to come. So Jesus' departure, with Jesus' departure, comes the arrival of the Comforter, or the Holy Spirit, as we know it. Um, he is sent to guide us to truth, and he comes as a direct messenger from God. Number four, Jesus returns to the Father to intercede for us. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And also in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we know that in the Old Testament, the high priest was the, or he interceded for the children of God, or the children of Israel between the, the, the people and God. And in that way, Jesus also intercedes for us. 
um, gives us the opportunity to approach God with confidence, knowing that, as we said earlier, the debt has been paid. And along with that, in verse 15, he was also um, a man like we are men, or like, like, like we are humans. And so he knows he has personally also experienced what we have experienced. Uh, point number five, from his position, Jesus now gives spiritual gifts that build his church. And if we turn to Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 8 through 13, Ephesians 4, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts, spiritual gifts, unto men. Now that he ascended, what is he but also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. So the resurrection was the foundation of the early church. Um, it's what gave them life. When Jesus ascended, he then gave these spiritual gifts to the, the leaders of the early church, um, and that is what enabled them to do what they did. The resurrection was so significant that they began meeting on the first day of the week instead of their Sabbath um, in honor of his resurrection. And lastly, the resurrection tells us that Jesus will one day return again, and this time as a judge, not as a sacrifice. John chapter 5, verses 21 through 29. For as a father raiseth up the dead, and hath quickened them, even so the son quickeneth who he will. For the father judges no man, but he committed all judgment unto the son, that all men should honor the son, even as they honor the father. He that honoreth not the son, honoreth not the father which sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but passes from death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear it shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man." Marvel not this thing, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So telling a time in the future yet when Jesus will judge. Um, he has earned the right to be our judge as well as our Savior. And lastly, in John chapter 14, first three verses, Jesus again telling his disciples, Don't let your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I want to end on that last promise there. Um, in Jesus' own words, or the angel's words, speaking about Jesus, the same Jesus which was taken from you into heaven will one day return in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. That's the promise that we have today because of the resurrection. 
with these thoughts, let's stand for prayer and then remain standing for the final song. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for sending your son to pay the cost of our sins. We thank you that he rose again and returned to your side. We thank you that he remains there day and night interceding on our behalf. We thank you that one day he will return again, not quietly like the first time, but with great power and authority. We ask for your guidance and direction the week ahead. Grant us safety, protection until we meet again that we can be a light and a witness to those that we come in contact with. We ask this in your name. Amen. I mean, standing, Chad, do you have a song?